Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will read verses 3 to verse 23. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do precisely that. Lord, we come to you this morning on this day of resurrection. That is to say, the Lord's day. And we again remember with joy and sobriety that your son came into this world, bore our sins, carried the cross, died, and also rose for our justification. And as we read your word and as we learn at your feet this morning, would you give us attentive hearts and open ears? Help us. Bear with us in our weakness. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. About 50 years before Jesus was born, there was a Roman general who had known massive success on the battlefield. 
He had become wealthy. He had the loyalty of his soldiers and his men. And he had become very powerful through his conquests in the Gallic Wars and in Britain. But at one point, he became so powerful that he terrified the Roman Senate. And so the Roman Senate ordered Julius Caesar to return back to Rome. And uh, at this point, Julius Caesar had a choice. I can return to Rome and probably be tried for war crimes by the Roman Senate, or I can refuse to disarm. I can go back to Rome with my 13th legion of soldiers, and I can become Caesar. And so Caesar made the decision to go back to Rome fully armed. And we think of that as one of the great events of human history, and yet really... Interestingly, that decision involved something quite simple, just something people did all the time, crossing a little river, a little river called the Rubicon. And the decision to cross this river, something that was done on a daily basis in this area, ended up changing all of world history and the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire, all because somebody crossed a little stream. There are these small events in human history that end up being the most important. And in a sense, Caesar crossing one little stream was a minor event. Something any, barely anybody would even notice. Something people had done over and over again. But then there's this other sense in which we know from the perspective of history that it was world changing. And that sort of brings us to our passage this morning because... The way that Paul begins, he begins by referencing something quite ordinary, something that happens all the time. In fact, as we know, the death rate is still 100%. Everybody dies. It is the most common thing in the world. And that's exactly how our passage begins, with something so common happening. A Palestinian man in a dusty little corner of the world, crucified. To us on this side of history, it seems like the biggest event in the world. But this was a world where 6,000 soldiers were executed for rebelling against the Roman government. 6,000 people executed by crucifixion. It wasn't unusual at all to see bodies hanging from crosses alongside the roads in the Roman Empire. Jesus did something that people had done for centuries before. And that would still happen for centuries afterwards. He died. And Paul begins our passage this morning by drawing our attention to this event that happens to every person. He draws our attention to a death. But it is the death of Jesus. And so when he opens our passage this morning, he says, Christ died. But then he says, why? He says, Christ died for our sins. You see, unlike this man just crossing a stream, crossing a river, this seemingly mundane event is not so mundane at all. It is not just a death. It is a death for sin. Jesus didn't just die. He didn't just shed his blood. But Paul says he died for a reason. And this morning we remember the resurrection of Jesus, but I think we make a mistake if we rush too quickly to the empty tomb because there is no resurrection without there needing to be a resurrection. The death of Jesus sets the stage for why we are here this morning. Earlier this year in the evenings, we've been reading through the book of Leviticus. 
people were to say, hey, what's the most exciting book of the Bible? Usually the first one people don't mention is Leviticus. It kind of gets moved to the end of the line a little bit. But as we were reading Leviticus, one of the themes that comes out from that book is the fact that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And Paul tells us Christ died for our sins. He takes the book of Leviticus and he brings it into our lives. And he says, you see, you need this. And Paul personalizes it. He says Christ died for our sins. He didn't just die for sins, he died for our sins. And I wonder this morning, even as we are preparing to really look at what Paul says in this passage, I wonder, can you say that? Can you say, Christ died for my sins? I want you to know that you can say that if you put your faith in Jesus and if you set your hope on Jesus. So if you're listening this morning and you're thinking, I don't think I could say that. I don't think I can say Christ died for my sins. I want you to suggest that even right now you begin to pray, even as you sit there and say, God, would you do a work in my heart this morning so that I can believe this thing, so that I can believe this thing. And I promise you that is a prayer that God will answer. Christ died for sins is the only way for us to be forgiven. So the first truth that all of this presupposes, though, is something so mundane. It is the death. It is the death of Jesus. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, just like we recited from the Apostles' Creed this morning. Uh, There are no credible scholars today, even on the kooky end of the academy, even the wackiest end of the bookshelf at the Barnes and Noble that you can go to who are going to say that Jesus was not even crucified by the Roman government in 30 AD. And that isn't all, though. That isn't where the story ends with the crucifixion, with just another criminal being put to death. No, Paul says he was raised up on the third day. And that's why we're here this morning, because of the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus is set before us by Paul as more than just a fact of history, which it is. But he he says to us today that if you believe in Jesus, the resurrection is an all-encompassing reality that touches all of your life in the present and on into the future. So... This morning, I want you to see that we are not here simply to observe a historical fact. But I want to follow Paul's argument. I want to see what does Paul say the real significance of the resurrection is. And so he begins by saying this is a historical reality. That's the first point. It is history. It is true. This did happen. Christ is risen. And then point two this morning is that we will be risen. There's a future element to it. And then he doesn't stop there, though. In the third point, he says, we are risen. There is a present dimension to the resurrection that I want us to see from the passage. So first, Paul begins this morning by setting this before us. Christ was risen. In other words, Paul begins with a statement of historical fact. He speaks in past tense here. What does he say? He says, Christ was buried and he was raised. On the third day, Paul is saying that Jesus's actual 
physical body was actually laid in a real grave and that his actual real body physically rose up again and walked out of the tomb. This is not just a spiritual thing. He did not spiritually get buried and spiritually rise. He did not metaphorically rise. He actually literally rose. Now, why should you believe that Christ really was risen, that his body actually was dead for three days, and that after three days, his blood started pumping again, and his, and his body got up, and that he actually physically walked out of the tomb? Why would you believe that? Don't Christians know that resurrections don't happen? Don't we know the way that the physical universe works. Don't we know that this is truly impossible? That it's truly impossible for a person to get up and walk out of a tomb after they have died? One of the things I want you to see is that people in the Bible are not foolish. People in the Bible are not, well, some people in the Bible are really foolish. Uh, but people are not, in the Bible are not so Um, silly that they just believe anything that someone says when they walk up to them. The Bible is filled with people who are natural skeptics and tend to question the events that they're seeing. When Moses is walking through the desert of Sinai and he sees the burning bush, the reason that the text says he approached the bush is because the bush was not consumed. The implication here is He knows that bushes that catch on fire are supposed to be consumed, and that's not happening here. Moses knows how fire works, and he knows that this is not behaving like normal fire. Um, This is, you, you can call it this if you want, this is a scientific man. He knows this is supposed to behave differently than it's happening. The disciples, when they see Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee, are frightened because they know that people shouldn't be able to do this. Their reaction is not, oh, there's another person walking on the water, just like everybody always does all the time. They know there's something strange about this. When Jesus heals people, the response that he gets is amazement. Why? Because they know this isn't how the world works. My body's just supposed to die. This disease is just supposed to destroy me. And so precisely, the resurrection is no different, right? It it, it takes argument and persuasion to get across to people that this is a real thing and that it really happened in real time and real space and real actual history. And so precisely because the people he is writing to are not gullible Paul calls forward a number of witnesses as he's writing here. Because he knows he's writing to people who are naturally going to resist believing this. Why? Because they are not the silly, naive, gullible people that modern skeptics would like to present to you. But they actually do need to be convinced. If that wasn't the case, Paul wouldn't even need to give these reasons. And so he makes his argument based on four types of witnesses. That Paul mentions in the text. One of the witnesses Paul mentions that may seem so simple, but it is astoundingly difficult to get around, is the reality of the empty tomb. Jesus was buried in the tomb of a well-known religious leader named Joseph of Arimathea. And there were a number of people who saw him buried, including Roman soldiers who had every incentive 
to make sure that his body stayed put. And yet on that Sunday morning, the tomb was in fact empty. Part of why the empty tomb is so important is that the more the authorities floundered trying to cover it up or get to the bottom of it, the more we as students of history and scripture realize the problem they had to solve was quite real. Um, They respond to the empty tomb by making up stories, right? Their first plan is to tell them, say the body was stolen, but they can't provide a body. And then others have, have responded, well, maybe the empty tomb was empty because the body was misplaced and yet every effort was made to find the body. And if they had found the body, they could have shut down the growth of the resurrection story immediately. And yet the authorities, who have every reason to try to shut this down, are unable to do so because of the empty tomb. Second, Paul mentions the testimony of eyewitnesses. In verse 5, he mentions Peter. Then he mentions all of the twelve saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. But then he goes on to mention something else. He says, more than 500 brothers at one time. That's impressive. A group of 500 believers in one location. But then he makes this comment. He says, most of whom are still alive. Now, why would Paul say that? He doesn't say it just because they need more information. He says it because he's saying you can talk to them. You can visit with them. You can find them. The very people who saw Jesus raised up from the grave are still accessible to you. This isn't somebody that you need to go into a dark corner to go find. But just ask these people. They will tell you what they saw. You know the kind of person who wants you to talk to the witnesses The kind of person who knows that what they're saying is true. And do you know who doesn't want you to talk to the witnesses? You know who doesn't want you to see the evidence? Someone with something to hide. Paul says, talk to these people and they'll tell you they're still living. They'll tell you the same thing and they will even die for it. There were real people who set their actual eyes On the risen Jesus, Paul says you should believe because it's real, because we saw it. Third, Paul mentions the witness of the transformed lives of the disciples. That is a witness to this. Think about this. In verse 10, he mentions what God had done in his own heart and his own life. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul's life has been transformed. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a hater of the church. He threw Christians into prison. He went from being an enemy of Jesus, whose whole life was built around the edifice of Judaism, to becoming an evangelist for Jesus. And I tell you this, in worldly terms, he had everything to gain by remaining in Judaism. But Jesus got hold of him. And Jesus did the same thing to the other 12 apostles. When when Jesus died, what do we see from these men? We see 12 cowering, trembling, terrified men hiding from the authorities, hiding in the upper room, hoping all of this just blows over and goes away. You have Peter, this fearful man who swore he didn't know Jesus to his shame. And then after the resurrection... They become 
bold preachers who can't be silenced by persecution. And this is the thing about the disciples. Of all the people who were in the position to know if it was for sure whether Jesus had risen from the grave to a man, they all said, it is true, he really rose. And they were willing to die for it. Now, you can think of times when people gave their lives for things they believe in that they were mistaken about. The terrorists on 9-11 died for a thing they believed sincerely in. What's the difference between the disciples and these other men? The difference is the disciples are in a position to know if it's true. They know whether it really happened or not. They know whether they laid their eyes on that man and they touched his hand and put their hand in his side. They know whether he made fish for them on the seashore or not. And they all said, I will die before I say it did not happen because it did. Now, it is one thing to die for something you know is true. That happens all the time. It's quite another to die for something that you know isn't true. Fourth, Paul mentions the witness of Scripture. Now, I have to say this. All of the arguments Paul makes here are legitimate. The argument of the empty tomb is legitimate. The argument of the changed lives of the disciples is legitimate. The argument from the testimony of the eyewitnesses is legitimate. All of them are true, but in in a sense, but you don't get more certain than the witness of Scripture itself. Because the witness of Scripture is the witness of God himself. Now, if you're you're listening to me closely and you heard what I just said, I think this may be counterintuitive to you. Um, Because I'm basically saying that the best reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead is because the Bible says so. I did not say this is the only reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead, but I do say it is the best reason. Now, depending on who you're talking to, that might not sound like a very persuasive argument. Um, You know, there are many who want to start with history. They want to start with science. They want to start with human opinions. And if those things check out then perhaps they'll go on to believe what the Bible says. Um, Or they're left with the conclusion that the resurrection probably happened. But Paul doesn't say that the resurrection probably happened. But anytime you say, I'll listen to the historians first, I'll listen to the scientists first, I'll listen to the academy first, what you're doing is you're saying, I trust the witness of these people who might be very smart, but they're not eyewitnesses, and they certainly have a bias. They've certainly decided what's admissible as evidence and what isn't. I'm still putting myself at the mercy of these so-called witnesses. Once they've spoken, then I'll listen to God. But here's the thing. There is no greater expert regarding these events than God himself. And there is no greater source for knowing about the universe than the God who made the universe. So when I say that scripture is the best witness, I don't mean that none of the witnesses that Paul calls actually count. But what I am saying is that scripture has the highest priority because of who its ultimate author is and where it comes from. And so we as Christians begin with scripture. We do not conclude with scripture. And yet, in addition to what I've just said, Paul gives arguments, arguments that point outside of the text of Scripture. And what that what that tells us is that the teachings of the Bible line up with the events of history. 
They are not set against one another. There is not two different sets of truth. One for the Bible, one for human history, one for science. And so I want you to understand this. The better we understand the Bible, the better we will understand history. And the better we understand history and science correctly, the more we will see the teachings of the Bible affirmed by what we can observe and know. The Bible is a book that calls us to have faith, but it is not a bare faith and it is not an irrational faith. The writers of Scripture are in the business of answering our questions and answering our doubts. Whenever we have questions or doubts, I did not say if we have questions or doubts, whether, whenever we have questions or doubts, our instinct should be to lean into those questions and follow them up. We should investigate, we should seek the truth. And when we do that, we will find that we grow more and know God better and know God deeper as a result. So we should never be afraid of our questions. Those questions happen to shape us, to take us deeper. And Paul is encouraging that sort of faith here in our passage today. It's a faith that is based on fact and based on real history. And Paul is at pains to make that argument to us. And so our first point then is that Christ was risen. Paul's second statement is that the resurrection matters, not just because it happened in history, but because if we trust in Christ, it changes our future. He says, because of the resurrection, we'll be risen. Paul makes this argument that it's easy to misunderstand in verses 12 to 18. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then we're liars. And if there's no resurrection, then God hasn't solved our sin problem. And if he hasn't solved our sin problem, then he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, he points out the consequences if this isn't true. He points out the consequences. What happens if all of this has been just some grand scheme? Paul's argument here is it's easy to misunderstand. He's, his argument is not that, well, if Jesus didn't rise, then that would be bad, so he must have risen. That's not what he says. This isn't wish fulfillment here. He's not saying, I wish Jesus was raised, therefore Jesus was raised. He's not saying there are terrible consequences if we're wrong, therefore we must be right. That is a misreading of Paul's argument. Paul's argument here is the stakes are so high that we have to get this right. That's what Paul's argument here is. Because he says if we're wrong, we're spreading lies about God, we're committing blasphemy. And then at the conclusion of the argument, he faces another reality. He says the resurrection means those who have fallen asleep in Christ haven't perished. They live. That's what the resurrection means. The resurrection isn't just a fact of history. It is a truth that changes what will become of us all. Every single one of us, whether we are believer or unbeliever. And what Paul says is that if we, that if we only have hope for this life, that's pitiful. In fact, he says we're to be pitied more than anybody else. The resurrection means that we don't have hope only for this life. The resurrection tells us what's going to happen to us. Because when we die, we don't just turn into mulch. When we die, we don't just cease to exist. When we die, everything doesn't just sort of become nothing and blink out of existence. 
When we die, we don't get absorbed into the universe to be forgotten forever. No, the teaching of Scripture is that there is a resurrection coming. And it's a resurrection that's happening to everybody, whether you're living, whether you're dead, whether you're good, whether you're bad. When we're raised up, God holds us accountable. And the book of Revelation gives us this image of the day of judgment, how the book's will be opened, we'll have to give accounts for how we lived, whether we were in Christ or not. And if we're in Christ, we're raised to new life. And if we're not in Christ, then we're raised up to face justice. So don't intellectualize this the way the philosophers did at Athens when Paul spoke about the resurrection. They wanted to hide behind arguments. Don't make this So abstract that you miss the truth here because the truth is this changes everything. This touches everything. This affects all of us. Which resurrection are you going to experience? The resurrection of life or the resurrection of the second death? Paul tells us we will be raised, but raised to what? Finally, though, Paul says we are risen. We saw this already. There's a past dimension to the resurrection. It happened. It's historical. It's true. But then Paul shows us that there's a future dimension to the resurrection because Jesus was raised up. We know we'll be raised up. We know that resurrections happen now. And so we know it's coming for us as well. But Paul shows us that this message is not just something about the way distant past. And it's not something about the way distant future, pie in the sky, by and by. But he shows us that it also touches us right now. Because in verse 19, Paul says that in Christ we have hope in this life. The hope is past. It is future. But it is also present for us now. Paul's more explicit about what we enjoy right now in Ephesians 2, 6, because there he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. He's talking about us being raised up, but in the past tense as something that's already happened. If you look to Christ, if you rest in him, if you believe, if you've been born again, then You know the resurrection. It's already started in your life. It's already begun in your soul. Have you ever considered that as a believer, you have already been raised up. The resurrection has started in you. So do you see this? Easter is not a time for us just to remember something that happened a long time ago. Like people that get together once a year to remember a lost loved one. And it's not a time for us just to bring something really wonderful to mind that will happen someday down the road for us to maybe remember that thing we're someday going to do. But right now it's completely irrelevant. Paul says it's a time for us to rejoice in what God does for us right now. And here's the challenge that God sets before us. Don't just study history. And don't just think about the future Know the resurrection today. Ask that question at the beginning. Can you say, along with Paul, Jesus died for my sins? Can you say that? Is that a promise you can claim for yourself? 
It doesn't take an especially spiritual mindset. It doesn't take a halo over your head floating six inches off of your head or anything like that. All that it takes really is a sense of need. Do you need that? All you need to do is realize that you need Jesus and turn and follow him. He says, come, follow me. Take my yoke upon you. Reach out to him. Take hold of him. Believe in him. Because when you do that, you will be able to say for yourself, Christ has died for me. He rose up for me. And now I know I'll rise with him too. Let's pray. Lord, you have done abundantly more for us than we could ever plan or dream or expect. You've gone above and beyond by sending your son into this world to die for us, to rise for us. And then you sent your spirit. And for those who are yours, he quickened our hearts and raised us up with Christ Jesus. Convince us, O Lord, that every day the resurrection is a part of our life. And it isn't just a distant reality and a historical truth, but it's an intimate truth that impacts our heart and soul yesterday, today, and forever. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.